I want to start this morning by asking you, what is the hardest thing about being a Christian for you? What aspect of Christian living causes you the most frustration or, or disappointment or, or daily struggle? Well, if you're anything like me, then perhaps you also feel that the greatest struggle in the Christian life is the struggle to be holy. To live the life which I know God wants me to live as a husband and a father and an elder of this church and as a friend. My constant struggle as a Christian is because of how often I fall short. I fall short in my personal discipline, in my devotion to the Lord, in, in my desires, in my obedience, in, in worship, in grace, in love. And for many in the Christian life, this struggle with sin, this struggle to be holy can become so great that one of three things can happen. For some, they just give up. They give up on trying to be holy and, and simply resign themselves to a kind of Christianity in which there is no difference evident between their lives now as Christians and before they were saved. If you can even call them Christian at all, then it is a very shallow, mediocre, weak Christianity. Then for others who struggle with their inability to live holy lives, the opposite is true, where they become legalistic in their pursuit of good works, which exhausts them, which exhausts those around them, and they are driven by guilt and, and condemnation and fear to keep on trying harder. And then there is a third result, often following on from perhaps a prolonged period in each of the first two categories, which is those who then just ultimately give up on Christianity altogether because they see Christianity to be nothing more than a system of works righteousness which binds the conscience and robs them of all joy and freedom. Now, Contrast those three scenarios with what Jesus says the life of a Christian should be like. Jesus said that, that when we come to him, when we put our faith in him, he will give us life and life in abundance, John chapter 10 verse 10 says. We've just read in Galatians 5 that the life of a Christian should be the, the best kind of life on this earth. A life of peace and joy and contentment and accomplishment and ultimately perseverance to the end. But why then is this so seldom seen among Christians today? Why are Christians so often just as bitter or depressed or anxious or materialistic or shallow as anyone else might be? Why are Christian marriages and, and families so often just as strained and, and unhappy as, as non-Christian families? Why are Christian workers in the workplace so often just as mediocre as any other employee? Or Christian businessmen just as much workaholics as their secular colleagues? Well, it's to this topic that I want us to turn today as we consider together the work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. And my aim today is to help us to see that most of the struggles that we face as Christians in this world 
And the end result which it produces in us is perhaps largely linked to the fact that we have ignored or perhaps forgotten or not fully embraced the work of the Holy Spirit in empowering us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, to live these abundant lives which Jesus speaks about. So before we look at the practical ways in which the the Holy Spirit is involved in this process of sanctification, let me just start off by quickly explaining some terminology. Uh, Then we will briefly consider some key scriptures to kind of lay a foundation to this truth. And then we will see two very practical ways in which the Holy Spirit helps us in this process of transformation uh, to become these abundant life Christians that Jesus speaks of. So firstly then some vocabulary or terminology and it's the word sanctification. The Bible uses this word sanctification in two ways. The first is that which speaks of us being set apart as holy unto the Lord. And then the second aspect is is this process of becoming holy uh, on a daily basis. Theologians would call this definitive sanctification and progressive sanctification. Definitive sanctification is what happens to a person when we become a Christian. When we are made alive, as we looked at last time, and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are born again by the Spirit of God. And in that moment, we are immediately justified. We are declared righteous. Our sins are forgiven, and we are declared right with God. We are transferred from a state of guilt to a state of righteousness and holiness and acceptance before God. We are perfectly sanctified in Christ. That's definitive sanctification. So from God's perspective, once you and I have been born again, we are considered by God to be perfectly holy. This is definitive. It's definitive sanctification. We are holy through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His righteousness has been credited to our account. And so we are therefore perfectly acceptable to God in Christ. But from a human perspective, we all know that we don't immediately change from being sinful people into perfect human beings who never sin again. No, we know that, that in our conversion we are given a new heart. We are given the Holy Spirit of God who lives within us. And from that moment onward, for the rest of our lives, we begin this lifelong process of transformation into holiness into the the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is called progressive sanctification. This is the area that I have been speaking about where we experience the, the daily struggle of sin as believers. It's in this process of putting to death the old desires and the old deeds and the old habits of the sinful nature and this process of putting on and growing in the new desires and the new deeds or the new fruit of the Spirit. This is progressive sanctification. And so for the rest of today, whenever I speak of the 
the Holy Spirit's work in sanctification. I'm speaking of this progressive sanctification, this process of becoming holy in our daily lives so that we live every moment of every day in the power of the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So that's the the terminology uh, introduction. Secondly, let's just consider a, a few foundational passages which inform us then of the Spirit's involvement in this process of sanctification. And so turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is the book that we've been studying uh, over the past couple of weeks in our daily devotions with, with John Piper. And I want to start this morning with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to Christians, those who have been chosen by God, who are scattered around the Roman Empire, You've been chosen, he says, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So here we see that Peter is writing to normal Christians like you and me, scattered around the world. And he says that we are called, we are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so this verse makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is the one who is at work in our sanctification to produce in us what? To produce in us obedience to Jesus Christ. Let's consider another passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, and says, finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. See the progressive obedience there, the progressive sanctification. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. This Becoming more and more obedient, he says, is the will of God, your sanctification. For God has not called us, he has not saved us for impurity, no, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So Paul here is making it clear to the Christians in Thessalonica and, and to God's people today, to you and I, what God's will is for your life. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Well, there it is in verse 3. Your sanctification. My sanctification. In other words, God's desire, God's purpose in the lives of us as his children is to transform us into the likeness of Christ. God is committed to you and to me becoming holy. And he's so bold here to say that if we disregard this fact, if we think that holiness and 
sanctification are unimportant. We are disregarding God who has given the Holy Spirit to us for this very purpose. We are rejecting the working of God in us by His Holy Spirit. Let's consider one final passage which comes from the portion we read a little bit earlier, Galatians chapter 5, just two verses there, verse 16 and verse 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's walk in line with the Spirit. Let's walk in obedience to the Spirit. And again, Paul is clear. As believers, if you and I have been made alive by the Holy Spirit of God, then we ought to live this new life as new creatures in Christ by keeping in step with the Spirit's guidance, with the Spirit's enabling, with the Spirit's leading in our lives. No longer gratifying the, the desires of the old carnal sinful man. That we used to be. So I hope you see that these verses make it clear to us that the Holy Spirit is, is integrally involved, not only in the, the conversion of a Christian, bringing the dead to life, as we saw last week, but in the daily life of a Christian to lead us, to guide us, and to equip us to live and walk every step of the day in obedience to Jesus Christ. So this means that when you wake up in the morning and you need to decide which side of the bed you're going to get out on today, the Holy Spirit is there to enable you to get out on the right side of the bed. When your selfishness creeps in to your time management and your attitude towards your spouse and your children, the Holy Spirit is there to help you give of yourself sacrificially to others. When you are faced with temptations to sin or to pursue the things which perhaps are becoming an idol in your life, the Holy Spirit is there to direct your path away from sin towards obedience to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is with you. He is with me to enable us to become holy. To live our lives in the power of God and not in gratifying the desires of the flesh. And so for the rest of our time today, I want us to just focus then on the how. How does the Spirit help us? How does the Spirit enable us? How does He equip us to become holy? To be loyal, to be faithful, obedient, joy-filled followers of Jesus Christ. How does He do this? And I want to propose that he does so in two main ways, which Kevin DeYoung mentions briefly in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness, which I can highly recommend uh, to you to read on this topic and to, to really think far more deeply on this topic than we will be able to get at today. But he says that the Holy Spirit does two things. Number one, power. He transforms our wills. And number two, light. He transforms our minds. Let's consider in the first place then the power of the Holy Spirit as He changes or transforms our wills. So I have a question. What makes you do what you do? Good or bad? 
What makes you do what you do? You're a free agent, rational being. What causes you to, to make the choices and to do the actions and to say the things that you do? Well, the answer is it's your will. The ability that every human being has to choose and then to execute the desired path of action. And so it's not surprising then that the will is the battleground of spiritual warfare, where the devil seeks to, to win the battle over our souls. Here's a key portion of scripture, Romans chapter 8, verse 5 to 11. Jot this down and maybe work through it slowly again, but let me just read these few verses to you. For those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is it's hostile to God, for it does not submit. There's the will not submitting to God's law. Indeed, it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, Paul says, writing to Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So Paul is explaining to us that there is a battle going on in the believer, a battle which did not exist prior to your conversion, for you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were happily living each day according to the desires, according to the mind and the will of the sinful nature. He reminds us of this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked. Strange uh, illustration here. You were dead, but you were yet very much alive in your deadness as you walked and, and followed the course of this world. It, it uses a phrase here which talks about walking around with determination in your sinful ways, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And then he says something quite scary. He says, among whom all of us once lived in the passions, in the desires of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What a description of us prior to Christ. But now in Christ, you and I have been set free. We've been set free from the power and the control of sin in our lives. We are no longer uh, set on doing what is sinful, but we now desire to do what pleases God. The, the new heart that God has given to us, the new spirit that he has placed within us, now desires to please God, desires to obey God in a way which previously was totally impossible. It was totally foreign to who we were prior to our conversion. So the key, according to Paul, to really know if you are saved today is this. Do you have a desire to please 
the Holy Spirit? Do you have the desires of the Spirit within you? A desire to please God? Do you have a longing in your heart to conform your desires to God? Note that I'm not asking here if you are succeeding perfectly in these things in every area of your life. That's where the battle is being fought. I'm asking if you have the desire to please God. Do you have the desire for holiness? Do you have the desire for obedience? Do you truly desire to glorify God with all of your life? Now it's crucial that you follow Paul's logic here uh, in Romans chapter 8 verse 9. Because if you, he says, do not have the desires of the Spirit, then you don't have the Spirit and you do not belong to Christ. But if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you will desire what the Spirit desires. No longer what the flesh desires. And although the flesh and and the old sinful nature will still try to to tempt you and, and lure you away from God, nevertheless you are no longer bound to obey those old desires. You are able now in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to resist those desires, even to put them to death because of the greater desires of God, which are now in you, in this new heart, in the spiritual heart by the Holy Spirit. John Piper says the new birth is the coming into our life of the Holy Spirit to create a whole new array of desires and and loves and yearnings and longings. And when these desires are stronger than the opposing desires of the flesh, we are walking by the Spirit. For we always act according to our strongest desires. So let's continue then to follow Paul's argument in Romans 8 verse 11. He goes on to say, and if the spirit of him, meaning God, who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. What a powerful argument. If the Holy Spirit had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal body through the same power. The same Spirit will transform you from what you once were into what God desires you to become. And this is exactly, this is exactly what God promised he would do back in Ezekiel chapter 36. I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you and I will remove from you your heart of stone. I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you or cause you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is the wonderful blessing of the new covenant which God has promised is what he will do, something which was impossible under the old covenant. He will give us his Holy Spirit to live within us. And he will transform our wills, our desires to cause us, to, to move us, to then follow and obey 
his decrees, his laws. That's why Paul could say in Galatians 5 verse 23, if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer under law. The reason is that if we are led by the Spirit, we will desire to do all that God's law requires. And so we will no longer be under the law of God in the sense of something that we we used to resist, something which was a burden to us in our unconverted days, something which condemned us. Instead, now we are free from the law because we will be naturally in our new spiritual state desiring to do what the law requires. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of God's power at work in the world to bring the dead to life, to transform our hearts and our wills, to now desire what pleases God and then enabling us to live in that freedom that we then have to do what our heart desires because it desires what pleases God. That's true freedom. This is why Paul prays for the Ephesians. That according to the riches of his glory, God may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The Holy Spirit has the power to transform our wills. As Christians, we so often think that the desires of our heart are are kind of base desires that we cannot change it's it's the way we are made it's the way we are wired and if we have desires for certain things we can't help it the holy spirit has the power to transform your will to transform your desires so that you will desire what pleases him and then the power to enable you to actually do what pleases him to actually accomplish that which you now desire So the question of application then this morning is this. Have you submitted your will, your desires to the transforming grace of God by his Holy Spirit? See, our biggest problem as Christians is not that the Holy Spirit is unable to help us in our weakness to do what is pleasing to God. Our problem is that we don't want him to change our desires. Because we love the things that we once loved and we don't want God to take those things away. That's why I asked, have you submitted your will to God's will? Let's say you love something very much. Perhaps for you it's sport, golf, rugby, soccer, music, your work, success. Adrenaline highs, computer games, horses, reading, boys, girls, friends. You love these things so much that your love of these things is is taking your affections and your desires away from God and from what God desires for you. So you struggle, you wrestle, not because these things are necessarily sinful. Some of them may be, but many may be good. They, They may be morally neutral or even positive good things that God has given in your life to enjoy, but they've become too important to you. They consume your thoughts and your desires and your affections. And so you try to do what God requires while still maintaining your love of these things. What tends to happen is that your time with God 
reading his word, praying, meeting with God's people, loving and helping others, serving the Lord in your family and in the church and in the community, these things start to become a heavy duty to you, a heavy responsibility because they're keeping you away from what you really desire to be doing. And so you become frustrated as a Christian. There is little joy. There is little contentment and peace because you see your relationship to God in conflict with your desires. Let me ask you again. Have you submitted your will to God's will for your life, which is your sanctification? Have you prayed to God to remove from your heart the desires that you have for those things that you love so much, so that He and He alone may take hold of your heart with such power? Your love of those things will fade into insignificance because of your greater passions and desires and affections for God. If you have not prayed that prayer, then you are not yet submitting your will to God's will. And in doing so, you are resisting the Holy Spirit whose purpose it is to conform you, to conform your desires into the likeness of Christ. Listen to the words of Jesus and ask yourself if you are being transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Jesus says in John 6.38, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the Son of God speaking. He goes on in Matthew 26, just before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, he fell on his face and he prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. It's not about what I want, Lord. It's what you want, Father. Now contrast that submission of of the will of Jesus, the very Son of God, to his Father. To the warnings of scripture. To those who do not submit to his will. Acts chapter 7 verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. 1 Thessalonians 5.19. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So my question again to you this morning is, have you asked God to take over your will, your desires, your passions, so that you will only desire what pleases and glorifies Him? Or are you resisting the Holy Spirit in order to hold on to the desires of the old man? In the second place then, I want us to see that the Holy Spirit not only transforms our wills, But he transforms our minds by shining his light into our hearts. So light, he transforms our minds, the second point. And this is very closely tied to the first point because our will and our minds are really two sides of the same coin, two facets of our human nature as rational beings. Our wills, the the part of us that, that desires and chooses, 
is informed by our minds. And our minds will tend to focus on the attention or the object of our will. What you desire, you'll focus the mind on. And so it's futile to think that, that we as Christians can have our wills transformed, our desires transformed to live lives which God desires, while our minds are being focused on the things of this world. It's not possible. You can't sit in church and desire to please God in your life and then fill your mind the rest of the week with the music and the television and the social media of the world. It's impossible. And so we see that the power of the Spirit to transform our wills is directly linked to the light of the Spirit transforming our minds. Paul makes this connection very clear in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. But be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. So that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, which we know is your sanctification. So the transformation of the mind is what both informs and transforms the will to do what is pleasing and acceptable and perfect to God. Well, how does the Holy Spirit then transform our minds? Well, he does so in three ways. Number one, he reveals sin. Number two, he reveals truth. Number three, he reveals glory. Let's consider these briefly as we Bring this to, to an end. You will recall the passage that we looked at a few weeks ago. Jesus told his disciples in John 16 verse 7 that it is better for us that he goes back to heaven so that he can send us the Holy Spirit. And what is the first thing that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do when he comes? He will convict the world of sin. That's the first practical way in which the Holy Spirit is involved in shining His light into our lives. It's to reveal your sinfulness to you. To reveal my sinfulness to me. Now this is obviously the starting point for conversion. You and I can never be saved in the first place if we do not firstly see ourselves as God sees us, which are sinners under His judgment. And so that's the work of regeneration and, and repentance and faith to bring about the new birth. But then as born again believers, the Holy Spirit's work continues every day to reveal to you and I our remaining sinfulness, our ongoing sinfulness to convict us of sin in our lives. Not so that we go around feeling all guilty and grumpy and poor me, I'm going to eat some worms. That's not why he does it. He does it to reveal to us the sin in our lives, how destructive and unholy and unsatisfying it is so that we can confess that sin to God and then we can actively work at putting it to death. Kevin DeYoung says, defeatist Christians who do not fight against sin because they figure, well, I was just born this way or I'll never be able to change. He says that attitude is not humble at all. In actual fact, it dishonors the Holy Spirit who strengthens us with supernatural power to exactly put those things to death and to change. So if you, want, uh, if you are someone who says this morning, well, you know, I've tried, but I just can't change this or that in my life. 
or you maybe point your finger at other people and you say, well, you'll never change. You are setting yourself up in defiance against the Holy Spirit of God who has given to each one of us exactly what we need to change us, namely his Holy Spirit. It's the pride of the devil which has taken root in our hearts when we think and speak about God being unable to change us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit reveals not only sin to us, but he reveals truth to us. It's only half the battle to know what is wrong in us, what sins there are which need to be confessed and confronted and dealt with. But we also need to know positively what God desires for us, what God requires of us, what what God has purposed for us, what his promises are that he has given to us. And so another major work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to lead us into all truth, to reveal to us the mind of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.12, We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things that have been freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but words taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually hidden. But the spiritual person, the one who's been born again, who has the Spirit of God inside of you, That person judges all things, but himself is judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So Paul says we are spiritual people. We have the mind of Christ. And where do we gain this spiritual wisdom, this spiritual understanding from? Well, he says to us here in verse 13 that we receive that from words taught to us by the Spirit. Where do we find those words, those words of spiritual wisdom and understanding? 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. So the man and woman, the boy and girl of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, for holiness, for sanctification, everything we need comes to us by this spirit-breathed word of God found in the pages of Scripture. So it should not surprise you then that the devil's main tactic to destroy you spiritually, to keep you away from holiness, is by keeping you away from the word of God, from studying it, memorizing it, meditating on it, and he will deploy a whole myriad of tactics to keep you away from the word of God. He will do this often by keeping you so busy with legitimate things that you never get around to reading it. Or through desires and and hobbies and, and interests which literally fill your mind until there is no room left for God's word. Or simply making sure that you are so tired with life or so lazy that you don't have the energy to read it. So we need to be aware of his schemes this morning and realize that if we have any hope of of living any kind of abundant, joyful, contented, powerful lives as Christians, 
We cannot do that in a vacuum. The power of the Holy Spirit is mediated to us through the Word of God. God's Word is life. It's the the sword of the Spirit to fight the attacks of the evil one. It's comfort and encouragement in times of despair and sadness. It's a lamp to our feet and a a light to our path. It, It reveals to us the plans and the purposes of God for His church and for missions and eternity and for our lives here on earth. Jesus said, I will send you the Holy Spirit and he will guide you into all truth. And then finally, the Holy Spirit's work in shedding light into our lives is to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ to us. John said, uh, sorry, Jesus said in John 16 verse 14 that the Holy Spirit would come and would glorify Christ by taking what is his and giving it to us. And this is probably one of the most neglected aspects of our sanctification because we do not spend enough time getting to know Jesus Christ as we should. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18 says this, And we all, all Christians, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The real power of a holy life is a life lived in the shadow of the glory of Jesus Christ. You see, it's a well-known fact that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. And so as we grow in our worship of Jesus, we are being transformed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. There's that incredible doctrine of progressive sanctification, making us more and more like Jesus whom we worship. So I want to conclude with, what is possibly the most powerful passage in in the Bible on Christian sanctification, a passage which makes it abundantly clear that God has given to you and to me everything we need to be holy, everything we need to live abundant lives as Christians, to overcome sin, to be godly husbands and wives and parents and godly teenagers at school, Godly students at university, godly workers in the workplace, servants in the body of Christ, to become like Jesus in all that we think and speak and do. It all comes to us through the Holy Spirit revealing the glory of God to us in the person of Jesus Christ. So please close with me this morning by turning to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, we're going to end here this morning, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. 
by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, because of all that God has done for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There should be no such thing as an unfruitful Christian. We have everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So may the Holy Spirit help us all from being ineffective and unfruitful. May he help us to grow through the pages of scripture in our knowledge and love for and worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that we might become more and more like the one whom we worship. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious and Wonderful Heavenly Father, we want to thank you this morning for again these deep truths that are found in the pages of Scripture. We want to thank you for the Holy Spirit who you've given to us even right now to take the words of truth contained in the pages of Scripture and to apply them to our minds and to our wills, to the whole inner man in such a way that we are transformed. Lord, what we are talking about here is, humanly speaking, impossible. No psychiatrist or psychologist or doctor or behavioral therapy or anything that this world has to offer is able to transform the wills and the desires of the sinful heart but the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we want to pray and ask that you would take your word, Holy Spirit, that you would indwell us where we have quenched you, where we have grieved you. Won't you convict us of our sin? Won't you grant us that gift of repentance and renewed faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ again this morning? And won't you cause us, as you've promised you, you will do in your word, won't you cause us to walk in obedience to your will? Lord, we want to thank you that you are committed to our holiness we want to ask that you would forgive us for taking holiness so lightly as Christians. We pray, Lord God, that you would transform our hearts, our desires, that you would give us the power to put to death the sins of the flesh, the sins of the old man, and that day by day as we are being clothed in the progressive righteousness of Christ through sanctification, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is your work in us, Lord, and we want to radiate your glory to the world around us as we live lives which shine the Lord Jesus Christ to those around us. Won't you help us, we pray, individually and as the church, the body of Christ here at Honeyridge, that we would represent you to the world more faithfully. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to close the service this morning.
by singing uh, that hymn which really just challenges us. It's a call to us as Christians in the light of the gospel, in the light of what God has done for us by his Holy Spirit to live our lives for the cause of Christ and his kingdom. So let's sing that together as a prayer to God. Amen.